Well, what else can it be but the terrible events unfolding in Israel and Gaza, and how, if at all, we connect that to Russia? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. Well, I'm recording this a day earlier than I usually would, and it's another one of those episodes which is essentially based on four bullet points on a post-it note and a couple of jotted down quotes so my apologies if there is a certain uh, sub-coherence shall we say to this but given what's been unfolding in the last week in Israel and Gaza with this appalling terrorist invasion of Israel and then the Israelis push back and now their uh, ultimatum to the people of Gaza to evacuate before some kind of offensive there's really no way I could get out of talking about this even though it's a particularly complex and uncertain topic when one discusses on the, the role of Russia because first of all what is if anything the role of Russia inevitably some people were rushing forward to basically claim that Moscow was the grand mastermind behind this, that it was all part of a global war on freedom and democracy or a massive attempt at creating a distraction of the West away from Ukraine. We had Ukraine's President Zelensky asserting that uh, Russia is interested in triggering a war in the Middle East so that a new source of pain and suffering could undermine world unity, increase discord and contradictions, and thus help Russia destroy freedom in Europe. All pretty stirring stuff, although, as I'll discuss later, I actually very, very much would question whether or not actually Russia wants to see some major war in the Middle East. But in any case, this was followed by even more specific allegations coming from within Ukraine, but also elsewhere, particularly amongst, kind of, shall I say, Ukraine's most partisan friends in the West, very specifically asserting things that essentially that, of course, we know that Russia done it. Claims totally unsupported by any evidence, for example, that Wagner, that uh, all-purpose folk demon of the age, was involved in training Hamas for this, and that somehow Hamas couldn't possibly have done this without Russian assistance. Well, let's be perfectly honest... Hamas, in their own brutal, thuggish way, have in many ways demonstrated a damn sight more competence than the Russian armed forces. And particularly the point about drones that are sometimes made. Oh, well, they use a lot of drones and only Russia could have trained them in that. Let's not forget that Hamas were amongst the, the early adopters of drones in their asymmetric war with Israel. So this is nonsense. And as regards Wagner... Look, apart from the fact, as I said, I, I see no reason for Wagner to have been there. But also, I would imagine that these days Wagner is one of the most closely observed institutions around by a whole gamut of intelligence agencies. 
If you imagine that Wagner could have been involved, and not just involved in the sense of a handful of people helping planning, but actually in the level of training, well, that means a whole bunch of people engaging with a whole bunch of Palestinians, a whole collection of potential sources and such like. So and unless there is any kind of evidence, and I'm not talking the evidence that we saw at one point, which was an example of a video from inside a car and someone saying, oh, you see, they're saying Russian even while they're, they're, they're moving through, I can't remember if it was whether through Gaza or, or Israel, and others then pointed out, well, actually, what they're saying is Arabic. You know, at the moment, there hasn't been a single piece of proper evidence to support this. And in many ways, I think this, I mean, on the one hand, sometimes this is being mobilised for political purposes, people precisely who basically want to present Russia as being the source of all evils in the world. But I think it also reflects a, a prevailing tendency we have to assume that everything connects to everything else. Yes, Lenin may have once said that. It doesn't actually mean that it's always in, entirely true, or at least not as directly true as we might think. Just because there is clearly a current uh, conflict between Russia and not just Ukraine, but the whole West, does not therefore mean that Russia is behind everything. It hasn't triggered every coup in Africa. It is not behind every terrorist incident in Europe. And it is not behind this uh, horrific movement in Israel and Palestine either. So I think by trying to crowbar the crisis of the moment into whatever happens to be your, your wider meta-narrative, not only is that analytically shoddy, it also, I would suggest, is in some ways demeaning to all the people involved in this. We have to recognise that individuals, peoples, countries all have agency. They all actually get a chance to decide their own reasons for why they would want to act, rather than just simply assume that they are the hapless puppets of the Kremlin or China or the Illuminati, you know, whoever it is you, you might want to think. So this is both analytically as well as morally suspect to absolutely assume that Russia is behind it. As I will come to at the end, of course Russia is going to exploit this to its fullest advantage, but evidence of exploitation is absolutely not evidence of initiation. Particularly because, and this is my second point, which is something that I, I discussed in a sort of quick response piece I wrote for the Spectator's Coffeehouse blog. And that is that, in fact, from Russia's point of view, this is in many ways a, a complex situation which has its potential advantages, but also offers some really serious policy dilemmas. And as is often the case these days, when Putin is presented with tough dilemmas with no clear best answer, he has a tendency to become paralysed. I mean, it's worth noting, after all, that it took two days before we even got a statement from presidential spokesman Dmitry Peskov, and that was just a very bland, oh, yes, this is terrible, we're, we're worried about it escalating, we think everyone should, should basically be nice. That wasn't very helpful. It took another two days before we, we got anything from, from Putin. And to a large extent, what we're getting from Putin is phenomenally bland. It is clearly an attempt not to alienate anyone, which in the process actually I would suggest are risks alienating everyone. And what he says is, I mean, here's his, one of his, his quotes that I jotted down. What is happening is terrible. 
We understand that there is a lot of violence on both sides. But no matter what level of violence there is on both sides, we must strive to minimise or reduce to zero casualties amongst the civilian population, among women, children and the elderly. Now, in terms of response to, to a terrifying crisis like this, I mean, this is as, as bland as you can get. But it's also, I mean, the fact that twice he emphasises on both sides. I mean, this is actually the, a kind of perverse inverse whataboutism that is actually more trying to sort of suggest there is some kind of moral parity. But who instead is, is the real bad guy here? Well, actually, for once, I, I think I should be glad that it's not the Brits. As Putin says, I think many will agree with me that this is a clear example of the failure of the policy of the United States in the Middle East, which tried to monopolise the resolution of conflict, but unfortunately was not concerned with finding compromises acceptable to both sides. So, look, if in doubt, you can always blame the Americans, and, and that's what we're getting here. The thing is, though, that, look, that that is more than anything else, I would suggest, a placeholder of a response. Now, it's not actually that Putin does not, at other times, recognise to a degree what's going on, and particularly the fact that, you know, that Israel was ultimately attacked, whatever one may think of the situation, the overall context of it. But the point is that whereas the West has this moment in which actually terribly conveniently, unusually conveniently, both its geopolitical interests as well as its moral instincts align in supporting Israel against the terrorist invasion of its territory and the, the awful attacks that have been perpetrated against innocent civilians. Russia it finds itself in a much, much more complex and uncomfortable situation. After all, it has for a long time tried to develop and maintain for itself a kind of role as... I wouldn't necessarily say arbitrator in the Middle East, but at least a, a country that has a level of traction in the politics of the Middle East. And this matters to it, not least because precisely the Middle East matters to Europe, it matters to America, and therefore for Russia to have some kind of capacity there means that from time to time it can in effect force the West to, to, take a, a, to pay attention to it and its own interests. But in this situation, OK, who does it back, knowing full well that whoever it backs, that will alienate other powers with whom it has a relationship and with whom in some ways it, it come to depend? You know, Hamas, Hamas, which is you know, denounced rightly as a terrorist organisation in the West, is a body with which Russia still has relations. Hamas representatives regularly go to Moscow, there are conversations and, and such like. So, you know, from its point of view, it does not necessarily want to burn its bridges with Hamas, not least because when we're talking Hamas, we are talking to a considerable degree about Iran. The Russian relationship with Iran is fascinating and complex. We, we see a lot of talk about, you know, the, the sort of an axis of, well, what people tend to mean is evil, but, you know, an axis of rejection or whatever else. Look, when it comes down to it, Russia's relationship with Iran is not an alliance, I would suggest. It is rather the case that the enemy of my enemy is my conditional, pragmatic ally from time to time. What we have are essentially frenemies. On the one level, Russia and Iran have considerable common interests. 
they are both opposed to what they regard as a hegemonic and hostile Western-dominated, American-dominated world order. To that end, Iran is happy to make money by selling the Russians drones and the like. The Russians are happy to provide a certain degree of, sort of top cover for the Iranians in places like the UN Security Council. And of course, Iran now has considerable sanctions-busting expertise that the Russians are very eager to tap. That said, though, particularly in the Middle East, they are also rivals. They're rivals for authority and supremacy. Obviously, Iran is, is, is a much more present country. But if, if one looks at what's going on in Syria, one of the many reasons, in my opinion, why the Russians actually went in in 2015, apart from you know, primarily being to shore up the Assad regime. But why is that? Well, in part, because actually, if the Assad regime fell, then in a way, the only up to that point pro-regime forces which would still be around and which could possibly still be in control of Damascus are essentially Iranian-backed Hezbollah militias, which also drew on local forces. So, you know, it was also about not really allowing Iran to be the only backer of Damascus, because otherwise they're more or less handing Syria potentially over to the Iranians. So, you know, although they are both allied, shall we say, in Assad's coalition, when it comes down to it, they do have distinctly different agendas. And that's one of the reasons why uh, when Israel periodically launches air attacks on Hezbollah militia within Syria, the much vaunted Russian air defense systems, which actually are not bad air defense systems at all, the Russians essentially switch them off. Clearly there is some kind of understanding with Israel that Israel is free to pound the Iranian-backed militias and the Russians won't get in the way of it. So look, there are complexities here. Yes, Russia wants to keep Iran and Hamas on side. It wants to you know, be able to maintain some degree of diplomatic traction on Hamas and maintain its relationship with Iran, but nor is it actually going to go out of its way necessarily to help them. Likewise, Israel, you know, Israel actually is a story of unexpected Russian diplomatic success through the Putin years. You know, Putin himself has a fairly decent uh, personal relationship with Benjamin Netanyahu. Is the Israelis have not, for example, been providing lethal weapons to the, the Ukrainians. And in fact, Russia and Israel do maintain quietly positive relations. And that's not something that Putin wants to jeopardize either. And it's worth noting, I mean, for example, you know, although most of his statements have been this kind of blandly what about his ones that sort of more or less imply some kind of moral equivalence between Israel and Hamas. At the same time, I mean, one thing that Putin said was Israel has been subject to an attack of unprecedented brutality and, of course, has the right to defend itself, the right to ensure its peaceful existence. So, you know, again, Putin here is again trying to tiptoe that fine line. He wants to signal a sufficiency of support to Israel without actually providing, well, support, and certainly without burning his bridges in the Arab world. And when one says the Arab world, we shouldn't forget Saudi Arabia. Now, the Saudis were on the point of normalizing their relations with Israel, but it's also worth noting that the Saudis have been, in a way, normalizing their relationship with Russia too. 
MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and really the, the dominant force these days, I mean, he seems to have a, a personal, I hesitate to say, fascination or, or crush on, on Putin. But, but certainly there, there, there seems to be sort of something there. Again, strong man will appeal to strong man and vice versa. And likewise, you know, whereas the Saudis were for a long time regarded by the Russians as their main obstacle in the Middle East, you know, we have seen increasing cooperation on a number of pragmatic fronts, whether it's through OPEC plus and managing global oil markets and thus obviously oil prices, or indeed there's the suggestion that there has been a certain degree of quiet intelligence sharing about the activities of Iran in the Middle East. Again, the sort of thing which would really annoy Tehran if it came out. But on the other hand, from Moscow's point of view, it is a chance to basically trade what it has, which is information on its frenemy, for someone who is also very closely affiliated with the West and, and the United States. And it does seem to be that one of the things that uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov has been doing quite desperately, or in he and his people rather, this past week, is precisely to ascertain the Saudis' position. Because although the Saudis clearly feel that they have to express their solidarity with the Palestinians, at the same time they are implacably opposed to Iran. And therefore they do not want to see Iranian influence increasing. So, look, so many complexities. And again, I think the point is here that it does illustrate this much wider point. It's long been the case with Putin. And I think it's only got worse over time and, frankly, as he gets older, is that Putin makes decisions slowly and often badly. When he's presented with what seem to be pretty intractable choices, when he actually has to choose between... A variety of bad options and just simply can only hope to find the least bad one, he does tend to be paralysed. And I think this is what we're really seeing in Russia. There is a degree of paralysis at the very top, a degree of just simply trying to sort of basically provide the, the most bland and meaningless responses to the, to the current challenges and hoping that it will resolve itself and that the, the right path will become more clear. And one of the results of that is that different institutions therefore have freer reign to take their, their own chosen route. So, I mean, if one actually looks, for example, at the, the Russian MFA, on the one hand, we can say, well, there is not really much of a, of a clear line being given. But if one drills down to what particular individuals, whether it's the ambassador to Israel or whether it's particular departments, Actually, what we are seeing is multiple policy lines emerging as individuals and individual departments begin to try and press their own case. And what tends to happen, look, and this happens in all foreign services, is to a degree, departments become advocates for their country or their region. Whether it's just simply because they have gone native whether it's because it's to their interest to have good relations because then life gets easier, or whether it's just simply because they are that much more aware of the opportunities and costs relating to their particular sort of target environment. Nonetheless, what tends to happen is exactly that, you know, within the Middle East department, you have the Arabists arguing the Arab case and the Israel desk 
advocating a stronger line in support of the Israeli position. We can look more, more broadly, for example. I mean, one of the interesting things is that it's, it's not really a secret, but that there are many within the Russian elite, and particularly the security elite, who, even if they actually might harbour anti-Semitic feelings, are nonetheless very Israel favourable. Because to them, Israel is this um, martial Sparta. It is this country that, first of all, is not afraid to do whatever it has to do in defence of its national interests, which again is something that obviously appeals to them because it's what they think Russia ought to be doing. But secondly, they also regard Israel as being exceedingly competent, ruthlessly efficient in doing that. Um, I mean, if, if you look, look at some of the uh, literature, for example, on Mossad that you can pick up on the shelves of Russian bookshops, I mean, these are essentially odes to an intelligence agency that, that you know, it's the subtext that, gosh, we wish our own were anything like as ruthlessly efficient is not that, that deeply buried. So, you know, these are people who are, who are naturally favourable to Israel and who actually have been not just only demonstrating their shock at the fact that Israel was caught in, in, with such a strategic surprise and that the, all the intelligence and security community did not seem to realise what was going on, but also are now, I would say, facing a certain ambivalence as they see the possibility that the Israeli Defence Forces will roll into the overcrowded urban environment of the, of the Gaza Strip, knowing full well that, wow, that, that can get messy, as they know from their own experiences, whether we're talking about Mariupol or Aleppo or Grozny. And, you know, in that sense, thinking, wow, please don't make that mistake. So one of the interesting things is we've seen with certain, not just pundits, but also sources that are closely connected to the military or even more uh, importantly, military intelligence, is actually on the one hand sort of a shock about this uh, you know, Pearl Harbor or 9-11 strategic surprise for the Israelis. Secondly, considerable sympathy for the Israelis' position and that sense of, you know, when people come over the border and start killing your civilians and murdering babies, of course you are going to respond in a, in a maximalist way. But also at the same time, that sense of we want to try and persuade the Israelis not to make the kind of strategic mistakes that, for example, Russia has made time and time again. There's an interesting little internal debate now going on about particularly wh whether and when you actually send your forces into dangerous built-up environments against, uh, as they would see it, fanatical Muslim guerrillas. Again, shades of, of, of Chechnya hanging over this particular conflict. But so, again, what, what that actually gets is I would suggest that there is no Russian state line at the moment, or the Russian state line is just, let's just th they hope that things work out well for us. And in that gap, a whole variety of different actors are, are seeking to kind of present their own perspectives. And that, I think, really links me on to the third broad point I wanted to discuss, which is precisely that this is a case study in how we can expect to see differing narratives, particularly presented to differing audiences, coming from the Russians. But to me, this feels like a good moment for a break. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. 
Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counter-terrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So, on to narratives, and in particular, the fact that we shouldn't necessarily presume that seeing, certainly on Russian TV, is believing. There is, after all, a whole genre in the West of picking out comments made in the, not just toxic, but I would say competitively toxic TV, and to a lesser extent, press, pun, um, you know, printed media, punditry, and presenting this as, this is what Russia thinks. Now, it really doesn't work that way. I mean, if it did, if actually the kind of nonsense that's spouted on these TV geopolitical talk shows, these 60 minutes of hate, actually did represent policy, then by now we would have seen NATO countries nuked, we would have seen the Baltic states invaded, we would have seen all sorts of horrific things. And, you know, guess what? They haven't. The point is that, first of all, that these, particularly these, these TV programmes, they fulfil a particular role in kind of revving up the base, I think it is the sort of thing. It's, it's a little bit like the kind of moment in a party conference in which you, you, you bring out some rabid crowd-pleasing populist whom you know everyone else in the country may, may regard as a barking mad fruitcake but the point is the party base are going to be inspired by whatever nonsense they spout well i mean in some ways that's what this is this is for this is for taking people who are already partisans of the, the most extreme state line and and keeping them revved up it does not on the other hand represent policy and I think this has been very clear if one looks at the overall commentary and discussion around what's been happening in Israel and Gaza. On television, we have all kinds of extreme views being presented, typically, not entirely, but typically in support of the Palestinians. And very much, yes, of course, it's all America's fault. America messed everything up. You know, but nonetheless, what else can, can the Palestinians do? If one looks interestingly at the print media, well, obviously print media is these days also online media, there we see actually you know, a definite sort of scaling down. You have newspapers like Rasiska Gazeta, the official government newspaper of record, very much trying to stick to a just the facts, ma'am kind of approach. So, you know, we, we, we basically just have listings of things that have happened and things that official sources have said rather than in anything else. If you look at the tabloid Komsolskaya Pravda, for example, there, though, it's very different. I mean, there, the sort of tenor is actually really pretty anti-Israel. But even then, more on, shall we say, humanitarian perspective. Look at the terrible things that the Israelis are threatening to do in Gaza. Look at the humanitarian impact of trying to force mass evacuations of Palestinians, that kind of thing. So it's not actually saying... Palestinians were right to go and slit some babies' throats. It's actually more or less focusing on what they would present as the Israeli overreaction and, and lack of humanitarianism. 
But as I said, that's, that's particularly Komsomolskaya Pravda's line. You won't get that necessarily in Izvestia or whatever. I mean, it's clearly, in other words, that this is not some kind of official line promulgated by the Kremlin. It is Komsomolskaya Pravda's line. But even so, compare that with policy and with actually this desperate attempt to, to not get involved, to call for negotiations, to present Russia as being a potential element in that negotiation. But even then, quite frankly, Moscow is being much, much less forceful in trying to present itself as a potential mediator than one might expect. Why is that? Well, I would suggest it's exactly because Moscow realises just how hard mediation would be. And what's the point in being involved in something that you think actually will be a failure? So what we have are essentially, I would say, you know, a whole range of different uh, responses. We have a lot of toxic nonsense on TV. We have a very mixed picture in the press. And we have a policy community that's trying not to get involved. So, you know, again, we always need to bear this in mind. I think this is a great case study of this much wider issue, is that we must not presume that what is being said on Russian TV is some kind of direct representation of policy. I mean, it may be a, a tapping of the deeper, darkest elements of the Kremlin id, you know, how it might really think. But the point is, that is also uh, under control by a wider policymaking super id. There is a huge difference between what's being said on TV and what's being said by the foreign ministry and indeed the Kremlin. But nonetheless, and this is the fourth and final point I want to discuss, clearly the Russians are already and will continue to do what they can to take advantage of this. As well as policy risks, after all, there are definitely potential policy opportunities. I mean, I've mentioned, for example, the opportunity to use this as an instrument for anti-Americanism. Um, and, and on this point, I obviously have to, as usual, for the, the most uh, you know, lunatic comment, have to turn to good old Dmitry Medvedev, who on social media said, what can stop America's maniacal passion to stoke conflict across the entire planet Probably only a civil war on the territory of the United States. Because, after all, as we all know, the best response to stopping wars is a civil war. But anyway, putting that particular sort of bizarreness aside, I mean, generally speaking, you know, it is clear that uh, the key talking point for the Russians will be that essentially America was at fault. And interestingly, a little bit more subtle than some of the old lines. So not just America is at fault because it's backing those nasty Israelis. Because, of course, the Israelis are no longer nasty in, in the Kremlin's view. No, the Americans are at fault because, A, they essentially, as, as Putin put it, you know, try to monopolise any opportunity to actually bring a resolution to this crisis and then fail to do so. So the Americans are selfish and stupid, is more or less the message. And we have to recognise this is a narrative or a, a line which does have some traction. It has some traction with the kind of remaining leftist slash anti-American elements within Europe. But more importantly, it does have some traction in the global south. So that, you know, I think, again, this, this idea that it's not that the Americans are necessarily evil, you know, putting aside uh, Medvedev's uh, comments. It is rather that the Americans 
are unable to do what they seem to have decided is their role in the world. The Americans want to be the global policeman, the Russian line is, and yet crimes are still happening. We have to blame the Americans for taking that role upon themselves. So, you know, yes, this is, this is going to be used as an anti-American line, especially in, well, obviously, particularly in, in the Muslim world, but I think in the global south more generally. The second way it's clearly going to be used is exactly as in the hope of distraction of the West from the crisis in Ukraine. And I think this is going to be a really important one because it's not just something that the Russians you know, would hope to be able to mobilize in order to undermine support for or capacity to support Ukraine. It's also going to be important because it's going to kindle hope in Putin's withered breast. As I've said in past podcasts, one of the key reasons why the Russian strategy is essentially just to sort of to dig in and to win by not losing is this belief, presumably on Putin's part, that if he continues this long enough, in due course, Ukraine will no longer be able to continue to fight and the West's will to, to bankroll the war will also have, have declined and fragmented. So you know, in that context, anything that gives Putin hope actually prolongs the war because it means that he has no reason at all to look for exits to negotiate or anything like that. And obviously there are those within the Russian system, either because they're, they're the sort of nationalists who want to see the war continue or just simply because they're currying favour with the boss and they know that the boss likes to hear comforting lies rather than hard truths. So I, th I think they will also be trying to encourage this notion that, in fact, this is the war that, in fact, you know, who loses this war most? Well, probably Hamas, but the Ukrainians are close second. So in this respect, again, I think what we can expect to see in the, in the future are, are further attempts to, to, to talk up, on the one hand, ironically, Israel's need for support. I suspect that we're actually going to be getting some particular agents of influence of the Russians actually talking up the need for the West to support Israel. Because after all, every dollar, every euro, or more to the point, every artillery shell that ends up going towards Israel cannot go towards Ukraine. So, so perversely, Russia has, an, has a, an incentive to actually argue Ukraine's case. But again, I think through, through, through covert uh, instruments rather than directly. Secondly, there will be this point about whether or not the West can afford to maintain support for Israel in what is not likely to be a quick and easily resolved conflict, as well as support for Ukraine in, as again, as I've said in the previous podcast, you know, oh, it's going to be a forever war. It's going to last forever. Are we willing to continue to and be able to send the assets that, that are needed? So again, you know, I think all of this is, is something that we are going to see the Russians directly and indirectly and through their various disinformation outlets and so forth hammer away at. Now, the truth of the matter is it is possible but difficult to continue to support Ukraine at at least the current level and also provide additional support to Israel if, if we feel that's necessary. And, and when I say support for Israel, I mean that might also be indirect support in the sense of aid and tent cities for resettled Gazans in the hope that that diverts at least a few of them from becoming 
prey to the jihadist blandishments of becoming martyrs and suicide bombers. So there's actually a variety of ways in which the West can play a positive role. But of course, as I say, all of which has a cost, all of which therefore provides opportunities for Russian information and influence operations to basically saying, oh no, we are overstretched. How else are the Russians going to potentially use the situation? Well, I mean, obviously, there's much less about using, but shall we say, taking advantage of the situation, oil. Oil prices. The oil prices shot up by 4% on Monday on the, the news of the attack. It then stabilised, but it stabilised still at a slightly higher level. Instability in the Middle East always tends to, to lead to higher oil prices, and higher oil prices clearly are good for an oil exporter like Russia, and particularly a Russian state that, that, that still depends to a considerable extent on the revenues gained therefrom. So actually, in this way, you know, it still comes down to this. What Moscow always treasures is a certain baseline level of instability in the Middle East, because that gives it leverage and gives it options. Total peace in the Middle East, bad thing. All-out war in the Middle East, probably also a bad thing, especially because it might actually spill into Syria, and that causes all sorts of other policy dilemmas. So look, as ever, the Russians, when it comes down to it, they are not serious actors in this conflict. They were not behind it, they are not orchestrating it, they don't really have much of a clue as to what to do with it, and even if and when they do, they won't really have that much leverage over it. But nonetheless, they are parsimonious. They are going to do what they can to take fullest advantage of it. And that's what we can expect. And the irony is, and this is my closing point, is that the more we big up the Russians' role, the more we claim that, that they were in some way crucial, actually the more we play to Putin the more we actually allow him to not just feel but be regarded in the world as that uh, you know, Bond villain stereotype who somehow is able to, in the name of influencing one conflict, spark other conflicts in other parts of the world. This notion of Russia as having the capacity to basically shape the global environment is not only deeply muddle-headed, it actually plagues to the Russians' advantage. It makes them more formidable than they really are. So, you know, ultimately, for the sake of not just the people of Israel and Palestine, but for all of us, we need to keep Russia's role in context. This is a Middle Eastern crisis. It is horrific. It is very much uncertain quite where it's going to go. It does pose certain opportunities for Moscow, as well as a whole variety of challenges. But when it comes down to it, the Russians, even more so than the rest of us, are just simply doing their best in an unpredictable, unstable and uncertain environment. And we should recognise that and not give them more credit than they do. And let me close just with one very, very specific example to illustrate that. Um, there have inevitably already been claims from the Russians or Russian-affiliated sources that Western weapons, which were provided to Ukraine, ended up in the hands of Hamas. Now, this is A, totally unproven, and B, 
very much, I think, at, at, a, at a low level. I mean, we're talking about if it happens at all, which wouldn't entirely surprise me, we're talking about you know, a handful of small arms. Now, look, in any major war where there's a whole g bunch of guns sloshing around, there will be some level of an illegal market thereof. There is no evidence of any major outflows from Ukraine, and certainly even, even those trades that have been have been just, of, of, you know, as I say, small arms rather than larger pieces of kit. So if any such weapons did turn up in Hamas's hands, it's almost certainly actually just simply the result of them buying it on illegal markets or maybe provided by the Russians. But even that, frankly, I would doubt. If this were some kind of Russian operation to try and discredit Ukraine and make it seem that the West should, should think twice or thrice before sending further weapons, why just a, a couple of small arms? You know, we know, for example, that some Enlaws and Javelin anti-tank missiles have, have been captured from the battlefield. Well, why not one or two of them with the sort of serial numbers that would clearly show that, that, that they were provided to, to Ukraine? You know, even there, it's not actually as if the Russians were prescient enough to basically set up a potential information operation. All they can do is just spin whatever little snippets of, of reality suits their na overall narrative and try and play it up into, into a bigger one. And if we either use that as a way of saying this is why the Russians are behind Hamas or use it as an example of this is why Ukraine is a leaking sieve and all of these weapons that we're giving them are he heading into global hotspots, you know, either way, we actually dramatically misread the situation. So in this respect, at least, a bit of a sense of proportion is needed. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>